Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. Verdesian sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Verdesian for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com. That's VLSCI.com. Or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. This week's edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast we're talking about one of the oldest and most influential no-till field days in the United States. Blake Brown is the director of the Ag Research and Education Center at Milan, Tennessee. The center, one of 10 in Tennessee, shares a significant anniversary in the annals of no-till history with another event. This year's Milan No-Till Field Day is scheduled for a mix of in-person and virtual events on July 28th and was first held in 1981. Earlier this month, Brown spoke with Lesnar Media President Mike Lesnar about the history and future of the Milan Center, Field Day, and more. Hello, everybody. Mike Lesnar here from No-Till Farmer and Farm Equipment Magazine. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Uh, we've got Dr. Blake Brown from the University of Tennessee and the Milan uh, Field Day with us today, which is uh, just a few weeks ahead of the 2022 event uh, that's making its first return to a live format after four years. Um, so excited to have Blake with us today. Thanks for joining us. How are things uh, going in Milan today, Blake? Going very well. We've uh, obviously we're four weeks out from today from our event. It's July 28th, and today is June 30th. So. Uh, we feel like we've got a lot to get done in the next four weeks, but we always do. It'll all happen. I've got a great crew here. Uh, they're working hard. Uh, crops are in place. Everything is planted and sprayed and uh, uh, fertilized, and we're ready for a rain. We're getting pretty dry, but that's not uncommon for this time of year in West Tennessee. So all in all, things are very good and appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Tell us about the, uh, the visual over your shoulder that I'm looking at here. Well, that's actually some of the land that our center was established back in 1962, and it was on land that formerly belonged to an Army ammunition plant, the Milan Army ammunition plant, started back in the 40s. Uh, and in 62, we got about uh, almost 500 acres. 
Back in about 82 or three, they leased an additional 200 acres from the arsenal that was adjacent to the property that we now own. Uh, in 2001, we started negotiating. I did on this property uh, that you can see behind me. It's another tract of the arsenal property, another 188 acres. And at that time, I thought, you know, hey, we'll have all the land we ever need. We've got a total of about 630 or 40 acres tillable. We're in the process now, that facility is closing down, and we're in the process of getting that transferred to the university. And that took literally an act of Congress uh, that happened on New Year's Day of 2021. And uh, we're about halfway through that process. We're having to have environmental surveys done. And right now we're doing a cultural resources survey, archeological type work with the goal of having that transferred by the end of 2023. And so that's just a little bit of the land. You can see the plots back there and laid out in different fields, but it's just another resource. And, and, and the arsenal has been a great landlord through the years. They've been wonderful, uh, but this will secure our future to have that property under the University of Tennessee's uh, name. So that, that's what that is. Excellent. And just a history side note, the, um, the munitions factory there was, was preparing ordinance for Built during the World War II. Kind of an amazing story. They said they built that facility in, I believe, 11 or 13 months. Uh, it's got like 1,200 buildings. It's 20, it was 26,000 acres, I believe. It's about 22,000 now. You know, it's got rail and water and their own sewage plants and the whole thing. It's kind of like a little city. But uh, they've got a lot of land, you know, obviously, where they can spread out these munitions uh, factories and storage facilities. And so uh, it has, I guess, run its course. We hate to lose it because it's been the, the largest employer in our county for many, many, many years. So that's a big hit to our, our economy here. But uh, it looks like that's going to happen. And so we'll see what happens. We hope to hang on to our piece of it. That National Guard's going to get a, a chunk of it for a training ground. And uh, I think there's some still up in the air. But yeah. Things change, and I guess that's progress. Yep, excellent. I've gotten to know you here over the last year as we were preparing materials for the, the 60th anniversary of, of No-Till, which got its start up in uh, Herndon, Kentucky by the Young family. And you, you prepared all kinds of photos and things for our museum. But I guess I hadn't realized at the time that you share that same 60th anniversary there yeah. at your place. Yeah, we haven't talked about that a lot this year. Uh, but yes, this is our 60th anniversary of our center. And we'll be talking about that some at our field day and, and our, our breakfast. And, um, you know, I think that's significant. That's uh, a lot of good things have happened here through the years. I think, you know, kind of what I'm thinking is, is getting this property transferred kind of sets us up for the next 60 years. And so that's a goal of mine. Uh, I've got uh, way less years in front of me than I got behind me. And one of my goals is to get this done before I retire. You know, I don't know exactly when that's going to be, but uh, dealing with the federal government is challenging sometimes. They don't move as quickly as we would hope sometimes, but uh, uh, we're pretty confident it's going to happen. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, for, um, for those out there who might not be familiar, um, tell us a little bit about, about Milan, the town, what part of the state it's in, and, and how this small little hamlet uh, became such an influential part in the, the annals of no-till history. 
Well, Milan is located approximately halfway between Memphis and Nashville uh, in western part of Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee is kind of divided into three sections, west, middle, and east. We're part of the University of Tennessee. Our main campus is in Knoxville in East Tennessee. We're about 320 miles from the main campus. And so our system, we have 10 research and education centers across the state, similar to what most states have, probably all. Uh, and we all focus on different commodities that are grown in that part of the state. And so we have some that work with livestock, beef cattle, and, and some that do vegetables and ornamentals and all kinds of things, tobacco, different crops. Here at Milan, it has always been focused on the row crops grown in West Tennessee. Now, we have a larger station just south of us at Jackson, about 25 miles south, where there is a, a component of faculty who are actually located there who are affiliated with the departments in Knoxville, plant science, entomology, plant pathology, biosystems, engineering, soil science, et cetera. And so they do work here. Uh, you know, we're 35 minutes away, as well as faculty from Knoxville. This station was set up in 1962 kind of as a way to do larger plots, uh, do more field scale work, and it's evolved through the years. And so now we do a lot of small plot research. And by that, I mean a lot of 30 feet long and 10 foot wide plots or five foot wide plots. Somebody said, how many do you do? I don't know, a bunch. Uh, somewhere probably between 15 and 20,000 a year. We tried to count them a few years ago and that's a challenge because it seems like it changes all the time. We've, uh, you know, we used to say we had 100 research projects a year. Uh, we got more than that. We're probably 120 to 150. Uh, we have about 25 PhD scientists that are conducting these studies. I have a staff here. I have myself and I have three research associates with either BS or master's degrees that we say they're kind of the eyes and the ears for the faculty who aren't located here because we don't have any faculty located here. Uh, and then we have four on our farm crew and got a couple of administrative assistants. And, and then I think you've dealt with Ben at the museum. We have a, an ag museum here. But, you know, I think it was it's interesting. I'd like to know exactly how the evolution came of starting this system, because, as I mentioned, we're dealing with the government and trying to get this land transferred. And I can't imagine in 1962 that there were as many hurdles to jump through as what we're doing now. But I could be wrong. I, I don't find any of that in the record. So I don't really know how it all came about. Milan itself is a town of about, uh, we're probably around 8,000 people now. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, the Army Ammunition Plant was the biggest employer. Uh, it was put in back in the early 40s as, as a support for the missions of World War II. Uh, I understand at its heyday, the, the, the arsenal, as we call it, employed up over 10 or 12,000 people. Uh, it varied through the years. When I came here uh, in 1997, I think employment was around 700, and it stayed that way up until just four or five years ago. So we're kind of a suburb of Jackson a little bit. We're 25 miles away. It's a great place to live. Uh, I started working up here when I was 16 years old, and I've been here most of my life, it seems like. But uh, really great people here. Uh, it's been a good place to raise a family. Uh, and I feel like we've done good work here through the years, and I've been I've been honored to be a part of it. Would you be the fourth or fifth director then in the third? Third. Mama Cutchin was first, and and I know you 
I, I saw your uh, website yesterday, and he was named the, the first director back in 1962. He had been an extension agent in, uh, from up in Obine County, just north of here a little bit. And Tom came and, uh, you know, he actually hired me to work up here when I, when I was 16 years old. And we can talk about that more later. But he was a really, Cali, uh, he was ahead of his time. And he was the person who first seemed to recognize, at least in our part of the world, that we were washing away. You know, we had the highest rates of soil erosion of anywhere in the United States. Uh, on our sloping land, they're saying that we were losing 30 to 40 tons of topsoil per acre per year. And he just recognized that we couldn't keep doing that. That was not sustainable. And so they, you know, we, we call him the father of Tennessee no-till. I, I talked to some of my colleagues in Kentucky and I said, you know, hey, y'all say you're first. We say you're first. Really doesn't matter. Uh, we all worked together and made this thing happen. But in our part of the world, he was the guy that led the team that, that started trying to figure this thing out. And as you know, uh, you know, tillage has been used for thousands of years for two things. Uh, number one, get that soil prepped where we can get a seed in the ground. And number two, for, for weed control. And in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, we didn't have equipment like we have now. We certainly didn't have the herbicides that we have now. Mm -hmm. And there were some challenges. You know, I remember the first experience I had when I came here, we had an old Alice Chalmers planter that we were trying to plant soybeans in the wheat stubble. The summer of 1980 was the hottest one I ever remember, the driest one. It was the worst drought I've ever re recalled. We had, I forget, 17, 18 days in a row, over 100 degrees. It was miserable. And uh, it got so hot and dry, I can remember hanging weights of every, we pulled every tractor weight we could find to hang all over this planter to try to get it to go in the ground where we could get the seed in. And, you know, it was just a real challenge. I remember they couldn't see their markers. You know, you're going out through the wheat stubble and all of a sudden you're off and you're planting across the field and you're just making a mess because it was just, a, just things were different back then. But, you know, there was a team of people, including engineers and agronomists, and Bob Hayes was, was my mentor and was my major professor in graduate school. He was hired as a weed scientist to do weed control work in no-till. Uh, Don Tyler was our soil management professor. Hired the same time that Hayes was to, to work on soil management and, and those cultural kind of things associated with no-till. But there were many other people involved. And so they all worked together just to systematically start working through and trying to find answers to these challenges. You know, all the work that was done, what kind of culture do you put on the front of a planter? I remember bubble cultures, ripple cultures, and how big and all this stuff and you know, it was just, it was a, it was a huge undertaking. Um, the story is told that, uh, and I think it's true that some of the administrators at the university told Tom at some point to quit messing with his no-till and go do something productive. Mm -hmm. I saw a quote in some of your stuff from John Bradley. John said he had it in the back of the station where people couldn't see it. Uh, by the time I got here, it was, it was everywhere. We were doing a lot of work with it, but you know, he was, uh, hard-headed enough, I guess, that he didn't let that stop him. And he just kept on working. And, you know, fortunately for us now, it, it took. And we worked through those challenges uh, to the point, and I haven't seen the statistics yet for this year. They're not out yet. But, you know, we're up over 90% of our acres in the state are farmed with some form of conservation tillage. Mm -hmm. 
I go back to 1980, that was probably less than 5%. Uh, I think that's a pretty phenomenal story. So. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I've understood that uh, McCutcheon at, at the time, late, late 60s, it was such a desperate situation of that erosion that uh, kind of had to go right into fast track no-till, not go into, you know, some intermediate steps, but something had to be done quickly, didn't it? You know, I, I can remember growing up in West Tennessee and literally, I tell people, we've got photos over the museum. We, we plowed the gullies in in the spring before we planted and we plowed them in in the fall before we harvested just so you could get the machinery across the field. And it was not uncommon to have ditches 12, 18 inches deep, two feet deep, three feet deep. It's crazy how fast they would form. But we were plowing, disking, do-alling. I don't know if y'all use a do-all up north, but that's kind of an old southern field cultivator type machine and then we were doing in-season cultivation you know on cotton golly they plowed cotton every week all summer same like till it got so big they couldn't do it so it was continually working that soil up and every time it rained it just washed down the creek and uh you know the old fence rows the cemeteries things like that that weren't disturbed all of a sudden you see and they're they're two three feet higher than the field next next to them so it was uh I mean, it was a real deal. Um, when I was hired here as a student worker, again, 16 years old, uh, there was a professor at Knoxville named Curtis Shelton. Curtis was an ag engineer, and he, I say he loved to play in the mud better than anybody I've ever seen in my life. And his, his focus was we had a set of rainfall simulator plots here. There were 10 quarter-acre plots. Uh, they put in a three-acre pond that we still have now to, to provide the water for that. And he did some really cool work. It was backbreaking work, but it was really good stuff comparing different tillage systems on these plots to no-till or minimum till or whatever. And I don't remember all the treatments, but there were two sets of five. They were a quarter acre. Sprinklers were on, along the top and the bottom. All the water came to, a, to, a, to ditches on either side and along the bottom and then came to a flume. And the flume measured how much water was coming through. It had a chart on it that you had to fill these little, fill these things with ink. It was interesting. Uh, but then we would sample over time and they would analyze, see how much silt was coming out. And that's how they came up with how much soil we were losing. And the interesting thing, and we have photos that if you had a conventional tilled plot beside a no-till plot and caught the water in a glass jar, the, the water coming off the no-till plot looked like you could drink it just clear. The conventional till plot was old, nasty, muddy, brown water. And I always said I felt like that convinced more people to no-till than anything we ever did because they could see it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the slides I have, and I may have sent you that, I showed in one event that conventional till lost like 11 tons of topsoil per acre, and the no-till plot was 0.05 tons or something, minuscule, 180 pounds, I believe it was. And so it was huge, huge differences. I think people knew it, but they just didn't really pay attention. And uh, Get them over the head with a two-by-four. Get them over the head. And when they saw that, they thought, dang, you know, I've noticed that water running down my ditch is brown and muddy and nasty like that. And I think it really got people thinking. So there was that big push back in the probably the 80s. And then I think there was another push in the the mid-90s. Fuel got high. 
and people start figuring out, you know, I don't have to make all these trips across this field with these tractors and doing all this tillage when I can reduce that to maybe one trip with a sprayer, one with a planter, and come back and spray another time or two and, and, and wait for the combine, as opposed to three, four, five, six, eight trips with a tractor. Uh, of course, diesel fuel now is $5 a gallon. I mean, that's as critical now as it ever was. Mm-hmm. But then just wear and tear, time, there's so many advantages that we found you know, initially it was all about soil erosion, but once we got going, there's just a lot of other advantages that y'all know better than I do. Um, why it's just a great system, and so uh, it's it's been interesting to watch this occur over the last 40, 50 years or yeah. something. And, and y'all have been involved as well, so I'm not telling you anything new, but uh, I think to your listeners, that's uh, and many of them have seen the same thing. But it's been it's been pretty cool. Yeah. So McCutcheon and got the got the research going and, and got a reputation for doing good practical research. And I understand brought industry in when maybe that wasn't commonplace at the time. T- tell me about the decision that was made to uh, you know bring this to a head with the with the no till field day in, in it was eighty one, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I started working here in nineteen eighty. And we had a, just a little field day that year with a couple of tours, nothing like this. And, and, and obviously, I was not involved in the planning at all. I was just a summer worker with a hoe in my hand most of the time. But uh, Tom and his committee, his team, I mean, I think they decided it was time to share this. I will share one thing I do remember. In 1980, there was a local uh, effort, and it was called Operation SOS, Save Our Soil. It was a conglomeration of university the old uh, Soil Conservation Service. I'm not sure who all was involved, but I do remember that, Tom, we took our three or four or five tractors from Milan and went the other side of the county to the, the Dyer community. Uh, and I think it was the McCurdy farm. And, and Bob McCurdy now runs a sod farm there. I was over there the other day. And uh, they were showing a lot of these new practices, you know, terraces and and no-till and diversion ditches and all these things they had put in place, again, trying to show people how do we how can we stop some of the soil erosion. So that was not part of the Milo No-Till Field Day, but that was, in my opinion, was a precursor uh, that I think was 1980 because I was there and, and participated. So in 81, they decided to let's show what we know. We've been doing all this work. We've collected this data. We've got this research bring people in and you know it was still neat i mean it, most people didn't know what it was hadn't heard about it a lot uh, and so they they did and I, I i remember a couple of things number one um there were almost 1700 people showed up i think in something i read of yours yesterday you said 500 but there was more than that it, it kind of overwhelmed us yeah we had never had a field day with that kind of people yeah and the other thing I remember, and, and we had the tours and nothing like it is today, but there were, I don't remember, two or three or four or five tours maybe. About noon, it it came up one of those pop-up showers and just rained the thing out. Just, man, I mean, cars. And, of course, back in those days, everybody didn't drive a four-wheel drive truck, and they were parked out in their sweet field, and they all got stuck. <laughs> we all had to drop our trailers, and they wasn't four or five tractors, and go hunt chains up. And we pulled cars and trucks out of the parking lot for two hours mm-hmm. uh, just to get them out. But 
the thing was a big hit. Um, there were, I don't remember if we had the planters the first year. I honestly don't remember, but there was a lot of good stuff. We did have exhibitors here. I know that because they were the reason is what I was told that they said, Hey, this is great. We need to do it again. And my understanding is that it was really never planned that way initially, but when all your sponsors and supporters say, Hey, this is good. We won't do it again. They planned it again and off we went. And here we are now, 42 years later, still doing it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, you know, it, it just kind of hit. And then from there, it took off and it just kept growing and growing. And I tell people, I said, you know, I work for, I work for Tom. Uh, and then, unfortunately, he passed away in 1983 as a young man. He was only in his early 50s. Uh, John Bradley was named his successor. And I think John started that fall. And I had then worked for John for a couple of summers. I ended up working here six summers. And then in graduate school, working with Dr. Hayes, I did work here for another four or five years. John was a promoter. John took it from what Tom started, and he went and really took it to another level. And he was great at that. Um, and he, you know, he got lots of stuff going. He, he, made, it, uh, he made it famous, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, I think even the success we enjoy today is doing a large part to, to the efforts that he did in the time he was here. So we appreciate that. And I got to know John back then pretty well. And I don't see him very often uh, anymore because he's down south of us now. But he did a lot of really good things and got this thing going. And, uh, you know, no doubt he had an impact on, on getting it adopted widely like it has grown to be. So then you succeeded, you succeeded John Bradley as director, right? That's right. But your your dad also had a, a role in this a couple times, correct? Yeah, my, my dad, uh, my dad was an East Tennessee boy. I was actually born in Knoxville. He and my mom both from up there, but they moved down here. He took a job at the station in Jackson when I was three weeks old, I believe. So uh, I've been in West Tennessee most of my life. But he was a horticulture professor at the West Tennessee Experiment Station at Jackson. He worked with fruits and vegetables. And all about, I don't know, 77, I think he was named the superintendent. So he and Tom then began to work together. And when Tom passed away, my dad got asked to be the interim director. And he did that along with the one in Jackson. Uh, Then he did it again when John left. And so he was... uh, uh, he, he's got his dose. He did a couple of field days himself. And uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, that's kind of an interesting story. I remember he was, uh, I guess he was the interim when, when John left and I was working in Nebraska at the time. I was, I worked with DuPont when I got out of school. I was, I was a weed science uh, PhD and had a job I loved. And I remember he called one day and he said, well, that job at Milan's open. You interested? And I said, no, I'm good. I like what I'm doing. I like where I'm living. And anyway, long story short, we, we finally wound up here. Um, yeah. And it's been a really good, maybe it'll be 25 years in November. Never dreamed I would want to come back here, but here I am. And it's been a yeah. good run. So uh, funny how things work out sometimes. Yeah. So it's, you know, how you get pulled, pulled back again, answering the is. call. Yeah, it is. But it's been, a, I mean, it's been a good run. And, you know, when I was working with industry, I, I, I focused on a very narrow segment of the ag business. I was working with weed control and herbicides with you insects. I loved it. I mean, love my job. Great company. 
worked with the universities out there, but I felt like when I came here, I'm not near as deep, but I get to work with all these scientists in all these different areas, and that's fun. Uh, we get to look at some of the cutting-edge stuff and see it on the front end, and, and I certainly don't tell them what to do, but I have some input and ask some questions and try. You know, my job is to facilitate what they're doing. I'm, I'm not a researcher anymore. I'm an administrator, but I have been, and I think I still know how to do it. And my job is to help them do their job. Yeah. And, uh, and that's been fun. Uh, most days it's a lot of fun. It has its challenges, as you can imagine, as every job does. But I've uh, been, been fortunate to work with some really good stuff, really good folks. And I, like I said, I think we do good work, and I think it matters. And that's why I get up and come to work every day. So. Yeah. Welcome back to Blake Brown and Mike Lasseter in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Verdesian, for supporting today's podcast. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com. That's VLSCI.com. Or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter. A reader recently asked me what were some of the biggest mistakes I've seen no-tillers make in uh, switching over to no-tillage. And it gave me an idea to go back to talk to several people who have been to all 30 or 31 of our national no-tillage conferences. And uh, we asked them the same question a few years back during one of the events. Brian Van Holten of Coal Camp, Missouri is one of these farmers who's attended all our, of our events. And he said the biggest mistake he made is giving up too early on cover crops. He planted his first cover crop in 1997, had a stand failure, and had to replant corn. The second year wasn't much better, so he gave up on cover cropping. Looking back, he says he should have had the confidence to stick with protecting the land with a cover crop. And if he'd stuck with it, he'd be over 20 years now in the cover cropping at this point and he would be probably seeing the same incredible results that other no-tillers are seeing. Another no-tiller who's been to all our conferences is Alan Berry of Nauru, Illinois. And Alan said that he was too slow at parking the disc and field cultivator. It took him a few years coming to the National No-Tillage Conference to figure out that he needed to park those tillage tools. And around 2000, the year 2000, he totally quit using those tillage tools and went 100% to no-till. And now we'll get back to the conversation. Well, in 1981, year of that first first show, that was actually the, the year that my uh, dad, who's been the founding editor of No-Till Farmer, every issue since 72, he actually bought it from his employer um, and went out, hung his, hung his own shingle out in 1981. And he, uh, I, I never got the, the chance to meet uh, Dr. McCutcheon, but, but my dad, Frank has, mm-hmm. and, uh, it has a real uh, affinity and recognition for what took place there at, 
at your facility and how it boosted and advanced fast-track no-till adoption here. So it's something to be proud of, certainly. In your, in your view, what is some of the most important practical research on no-till that, that came out of Milan over the years? Well, you know, one of the things that the field day back in the early years, I like, um, you know, were the planter demonstrations. And, I mean, that was a huge deal. How do you get these this equipment to get that seed through this residue in the ground. And so they would invite them, all the companies, and we would have 20 or 25 planters, line them up out there in a field of wheat stubble, and every, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, they'd plant 30, 40, 50 feet. Then they'd stop. Everybody would look. They'd dig. They'd see what they did. Uh, and I think it was a it was a neat opportunity for people to see what was going on. Now, a lot of these companies bringing these planters, they were learning too. It was a new game. I remember, and I do not remember the brand. There was one guy showed up from Oklahoma, and he had in in my mind it would be something. It probably wasn't, but it was like a big air drill or something. It was huge for our part of the world back then. And he was going to rent a tractor, and 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 it wasn't air. I think this is way before that, but it was a big machine. And I know some of our people are like, what are you going to pull it with? And he's like, oh, I got a tractor, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't think it's going to pull it down. Like, oh, yeah, well, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Well, he rented one from a dealer. It wouldn't pull it. I mean, he'd just sit there and spin, you know. So there's all kind of stories like that. But I, I think the I think the planter demonstrations were a great big hit. A lot of people liked it. They could see. They could compare like you could do nowhere else that I'm aware of. And then all the other things facets that come in you know i mean there was this notion that well if we no-till all the insects are going to get everything up you know that was we had to prove that wrong and i said we i'm not talking about me i wasn't in that role then but you know diseases are going to take everything over well we had to show that that wasn't right uh all your fertilizer you're not mixing it in the soil that's not going to work yeah you know we can spread it on top does just fine so all these things Lots of questions we had. You know, how does Lime act if you can't incorporate it? Um, and then the, the weed control, you know, like I said, that was the other thing. It was huge. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you control weeds? And I can remember, uh, you know, one of my jobs every Friday, I had a, you remember the old Ropewick applicators? Mm-hmm. You know, that we used to wipe down here at Johnson Grass a lot. I had a little handheld that was about a foot wide and in a PVC pipe. And they gave me a two and a half gallon jug around up and a handheld rope wick and a pickup truck. And every Friday I drove around this whole place and wiped Johnson grass because that was the only way we had to control it back then, you know, uh, post-emergence. And that was just a job, just a real job. And so when I think it was post was the first selective post-emergence herbicide that came out that we could spray over top of beans and cotton. Golly, that was huge. Well, then I graduated from a handheld rope wick to a three-gallon backpack sprayer. Mm-hmm. And I remember, man, there's another boy that worked here who's, who worked here and gone on with John Deere named Charlie Brown. We sprayed this whole unit one arsenal backpack, 200 acres, bad Johnson grass. Took a week. Yeah. And we got done, and I remember telling Charlie, I said, Charlie, I don't know what they're going to have us do now, but it can't be bad as this was. And yeah. So we went and found Don Gibson, who was our former great guy. I need to talk about him in a minute. Don, what you want us to do now? He said, well, you boys go back and start over where you started. You can tell where you missed by now. <laughs> we had to do it all again. But 
you know, when you when you spend your summers doing that and you start finding things that work better and all of a sudden you can spray over the top of this with a sprayer and not have to walk it, not have to chop it, not have to pull it. That was huge for me and probably what led me to go into a weed size career. But there were, I mean, there were lots of things. You know, there's so many issues and so many questions. Um, how do you manage fertility? You know, how much nitrogen does it take? When do you put it out? Where do you place it? All these different questions. It's all that, unknown at the time, right? It was all unknown. You know, we knew kind of how to do, we knew how to farm and how to grow stuff, but throw this no-till concept in there, it just kind of stood everything on its ear. I think people had a lot of preconceived notions that weren't true, kind of like the, the fertilizer and the, the insects going to eat us up. Well, that really didn't happen. Yeah, there are some issues you got to think about with no-till, but, but we had to prove to people that wasn't going to happen. And I think we probably spent a lot of time, um, you know, educating. Uh, somebody said stomping out ignorance. That's probably not a good term, but, you know, teaching and, 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 and making people. It probably was a good term, though, wasn't it? Well, it, 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 it probably was to a certain extent, but uh, it, was, it was just totally new. You know, you know, the old farm ugly. That was the big deal with Zeneca, I think, or yeah. I see farm ugly, use Cremoxone or Paraquat or whatever. Yeah. It was just different than anything that had ever been done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I told somebody, I've got a slide somewhere that Tom McCutcheon prepared, and it, it was kind of a summary of his work. And he says, well, this year we, we evaluated 12 cotton varieties, and we, we looked at nitrogen on corn, and we, we did weed control on soybeans. And I said, the same kind of stuff we're doing now. You know, have we not made any progress? Yeah, we've made a lot of progress, but we still have the same issues. They evolve over time. You know, we eradicated the boll weevil in cotton. You guys don't have to worry about that in Milwaukee, but yeah. we thought, man, that's going to be it's going to be great. Well, we did, but there were other pests that came in and took its place. You know, stink bugs and and things like that. So you shift and you adjust. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing I have learned in agriculture, you know, it's a system. Uh, nothing is easy. It's all interconnected. And right here on my desk, it says, if an organism is kept under constant temperature, pressure, light, heat, and humidity, the organism will do whatever it damn well pleases. And there's a lot of truth to that because a lot of times we think we understand what's going on, but you got to keep in mind it's a system. And there are a lot of factors at play at the same time. And so, uh, it always keeps us employed, and uh, I guess that's job security. Yep, yep. Words that have been shared with me about the work that you guys have done and they're known for is uh, highly, highly practical. This isn't theoretical, nice-to-know, someday type ivory tower lab research. This is this is stuff that farmers can can act on immediately. Is that that a fair statement from your view? Absolutely. I've got some some good friends that I met that came to the field day and from Texas and, uh, you know, they just came and wanted to learn how to do some of this. I tell people now, you know, we've been doing it 40 years. Our focus on our field day is not to teach people how to no-till because, as I mentioned, we're 90 plus percent of our acres are using some form of conservation tillage. So we think most of our people know how to do it. Kind of our goal is how do all of these new technologies in agriculture, how do you incorporate them into a no-till system, which is our conventional system in Tennessee now. Mm -hmm. um, so, but now we, we in 
2020, our field day, we had to go all virtual. And I pulled a few of our folks, some who had already retired that had been with us a while, and we put together a, a tour called No-Till Basics. And it was on video, and we will keep that from now on. And it's going to be part of our program virtually this time. So if you're wanting to know kind of the basics and, you know, how do you set your your, your depth wheels and how much pressure and all that kind of stuff is still available. But the focus of our field day is, is moved on beyond that for the most part. Yeah. But yes, practical stuff. That's what we're all about. I, I'm, I'm real happy to say our, our faculty and our research and extension specialists all doing work here. You know, it's all very practical. Yes. We have some doing very basic research, but at our level here at the center's, it's very practical, hands-on, applied type work. Uh, and they get a lot of their questions from dealing with farmers. And, you know, these are the issues we're facing. Help us figure it out. We're fortunate in our state. We still have a very active extension component. Uh, we have agents in every county. We have specialists. And it's not that way everywhere. And I, and I hate that because they're still a real resource. And uh, we've got some really great people. And uh, they make it happen. And yeah. so it's just... Uh, I'm proud we still do that and we're still making a difference. Yeah. A couple other things you said that I, I keyed in on, um, on the, on the planter demonstrations, because more than one manufacturers kind of, kind of gotten the point across that the conditions were so tough down there. You know, the, the ground was like concrete from being uh, July baked that they really had to be on their A game and had to uh, resort to some interesting ways of getting a, uh, getting it in the soil with a couple secrets told on, on what was really happening behind the, the, the scenes and the demos. I read Tim's article last night. I think I know who you're talking yeah. about. Tim, yeah. Tim had a good story in there. And in, in what you'd said about manufacturers figuring out, out it on the fly, um, Roy Applequist, who founded Great Plains Manufacturing, had uh, told my dad and I this story a number of years back that they would uh, get back to the hotel all sunburn and kind of have impromptu meetings in the swimming pool where they asked each other, how do, how do we do this, this no-till thing? I mean, this is, they were, they were bouncing ideas off one another, some of them competitors in the yeah. swimming pool to see how to get, get a better result the next year on it. Yeah. I, I mean, I literally remember going back to the shop and taking weights off of tractors. We had weights hung all over some planters sometimes. And, and of course, like I said, 1980 was a bad drought. It was dry. It was hot. It was terrible. It was like concrete, literally. But the equipment wasn't as good as what we have now. You know, these planters you got now, I can drop them down out here. It happens occasionally in the blacktop, and they'll, they'll cut right through. <laughs> Those old ones wouldn't do that. Yeah. And uh, it was just tough. You know, I can remember hanging, like one of the guys had some barbell weights, you know, bolting those onto the marker arms where they would try to cut enough of a furrows that you could see your, your planter mark. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the first planters we had, there were no markers. They had a piece of metal conduit across the front of the tractor with two chains dropped down on either end. And you'd run that chain in your last row, best as you can tell. And that was your marker. Sure. And so all kind of innovative stuff. I, I was looking at some of our stuff, Bob Hayes, you know, the weed scientist was talking one of the biggest challenges was getting people comfortable with not spraying 40, 50, 60 gallons per acre on their herbicides. You know, they just, they had done a little of that before because they weren't spraying, but a little pre-merge or something down because there wasn't anything post-merge much you could spray, but getting them to where you didn't have to use 
50 gallons an acre or 20 gallons an acre. Uh, you know, it was all just, it was all new. I remember, do you, do you remember the little, they call them CDAs, controlled droplet applicators, little spinner deals, you know, three, four, five gallons an acre. They didn't, I don't think they took off, but I remember doing a lot of work with them and, you know, it was pretty amazing what they could do. And it was just, it was just unheard of at the time. So I don't know, man, if, if there's as many innovations, and I think there will be in the next 40 years, if as there has been in the last 40, it's going to knock your socks off. Yeah. I think it's going to happen, though. Yeah. I think there's things coming that we can't even imagine, but the last 40 has been pretty incredible. Yeah. We're, question on, along those lines. So you had mentioned that, uh, that, that big cedar from Oklahoma. Uh, were there were there some really crazy things that you saw attempted, and also were there some things that at the time you thought, "Boy, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to work." That did did take as a result yeah, of what happened. Well, I mean, it was it, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking back to being a 16 year old kid and seeing all this stuff coming. Of course, I was just enthralled with all this big equipment and stuff. I thought it was neat. To me, the interesting thing, the, all the different ways people went about solving the same problem. You know, some had cultures, some had shovels, some, I mean, I don't remember them all, but a lot of different ways to try to tackle the problem. It was kind of like, who's going to win this thing? And, you know, and, and we kind of know now who did, you know, the double disc openers came along and boy, that kind of revolution thing, revolutionized things. And, you know, folks kind of went along that, that model, put your culture out there in front if you need it. Uh, I remember doing lots of work here with, with cultures, a lot of work with press wheels, uh, you know, all this different stuff that makes a planter work. And, you know, the other thing I think we learned is that what works in West Tennessee might not be the best fit in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. You know, conditions change. I know when I went to Nebraska, my first trip out there, they were tilling ground up and down these hills that look like Middle Tennessee, which really rolls to me. And I thought, what are these people doing? And it was perfectly fine out there. That soil had more clay in it. It didn't erode like ours did. They could get by with it. It was fine. They did a lot of ridge still out west and some different different things, but you got to find what works in your system. So I, I learned from that that not everything's got to be like it is in West Tennessee. You know, we got to find what works for us. You might find some things we're doing that work for you, but probably not everything's going to work for you. You got to kind of figure that out. Uh, in your area and 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 see what happens yeah like these friends i mentioned from texas you know they they kind of revolutionized where they are out in in west texas they started planting cover crops because they were getting all this erosion from wind said so people looking at them like they're crazy but they're planting wheat or rye or something and then coming in and killing it and planting cotton and all of a sudden that's taken off out there and they're doing really well they're conserving moisture which is a big deal right now but they kind of took some of the stuff we were doing and made it work for them. Um, so we have had some folks through the years, and I won't name names, but they, they say you need to no-till every acre. You need to no-till it every year. You need to never touch it. Well, that's great in theory and practicality. It doesn't always work that way. You know, sometimes you have a wet fall. You have to, you have to, Clear it, clean up some ruts. You have to go in there and disc things up. And I think that's okay. Sometimes these fields get a little rough after you've been no-tilling them for many years. 
We got a critter that's shown up around here in the last 15, 20 years called an armadillo that make these big holes and they will just throw you for a loop when you hit one of those. Uh, and they're a real challenge. And so, you know, sometimes you have to do a little fixing to keep things okay. And I think that's all right. Now, I'm, I'm a proponent of get right back in that quick as you can. Uh, you know, these implements, these vertical tillage machines, and they do some cool stuff. I think they're great for managing residue. In our part of the world, though, I would I will never run one unless I'm spreading a cover crop or wheat out in front of it or right behind it. Just because they loosen our soil up enough, if you get a big rain, uh, one of my employees used to call them, and I'm not going to say that. It's a good machine. It's a good machine. But they got to be managed right. Yeah. Uh, I think you can cause problems with them if you don't take care of that. We actually have a study going on with that right now, looking at does that affect organic matter if you run it once, if you run it twice, uh, and comparing that to no-till. So I'm curious to see how that's going to turn out, if it really affects that or, or not, but we're yeah. working on that right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good good point. I mean, all, all agriculture's local, and we, sure. have, we have people at our national no-till conference who have to do it differently than the guy across the across the road, and they oh, yeah. both have the same result. But sure. you um, mentioned cotton a minute ago, and what I've gathered here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are kind of the birthplace of no-till cotton, right? Yeah, and I think John was really responsible for that. You know, uh, soybeans were the first thing we worked on, and then we, we went right into corn, and those were pretty easy, uh, relatively speaking. Cotton typically is a pretty weak seedling coming out of the ground, and it, it likes warm weather. And, of course, we're always planting as early as we can, and we're typically bumping up against that. And we may be going a little too early. Uh, but John, John likes to say uh, cotton is the only plant that comes out of the ground hoping to die, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you, you throw that residue on top of there. You throw a little moisture on top of there. It's a little colder, a little wetter. It's just kind of going against cotton. I mean, it's subject to, to seedling diseases. And so it took, it took some work to make that happen. But, uh, and I don't remember all the details to it, but, you know, hey, cotton's right in there with our other crops now. I think maybe, you know, these residue managers, maybe cleaning that that little fur off, getting rid of some of that stuff, letting it warm up a little bit better, better helped. Um, but yeah, it was it was a challenge early on, but now we know till cotton just like everything else and, and don't think twice about it. Yeah. In many cases, I think one, one, one of the other challenges with conventional till cotton in our area is if you plant it and you get a hard packing rain on it, and then the sun pops out, it'll bake it, form a crust, and we call it breaking its neck. That that little hypocotyl will kind of work out, and the cotyledon can't pop out of the ground. And sometimes it'll just break the stem trying to come up. If you got no till, you got some cover, you don't seem to get as much crusting as you do in conventional. And so I think in that aspect, it helps. Um, but yes, it, it had its own set of circumstances, just like lots of other things did. But again, Team of folks got together, look, figure, adjust, and finally got it where uh, we could consistently get a stand. Yeah, yeah, good. Kind of um, some memories about over the years of the the field day, and I understand you guys got as high as fourteen thousand people show up at this in the mid mid nineties. 
Yeah, there was a bunch. I don't know exactly. Uh, I think my records, I've got 11,000, but but there were a lot of people. And it, it kind of just started out, you know, it, it grew, grew, uh, and then it started tapering off. Uh, now we'll have 2,500, 3,000. We hope we do. We don't know. We haven't had one since 2018. Uh, but we're looking forward to a good crowd. That's what we typically have. You know, and people say, well, why is that? Why is your, why do you not have 11,000 people anymore? Well, I think there's two or three things. Number one, it's not new. Uh, number two, we don't have as many farmers as we used to have. Uh, and I think number three, you know, I mean, the newness has worn off. It's not a brand new technology, but uh, it's still important. And we still impact a lot of acres. A few years ago, we, uh, uh, we asked our visitors, you know, how many acres did you have? And we had about 25% of the acres in the state represented here that one day, which I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, obviously, in 2020, we didn't get to be live because of COVID. And so we made a decision to do a virtual event, which was an interesting exercise. And uh, But we made it happen. And it blew my mind because we had literally hundreds of thousands of hits from all over the world. Mm. And, it, you know, I'm like, how do you, you know, we do a little advertising locally and, you know, our marketing communications, uh, we don't advertise in Zimbabwe, but, you know, somehow they found out about it. So yeah. I don't, I don't know how all that works, but word really travels fast these days with social media and, and the internet. And so we did, we had hits from all over the world. That's kind of cool. Uh, you wonder how much of this information is applicable to other parts of the world, and maybe it is just as well as it is here. I hope so. Yeah. But uh, that was a that was a neat deal. And this year we're we're basically doing a hybrid. We're going live, but we will have the information available online as well. And so you know, even a lot of folks across the country that just tell me they said, "Well, you know, we just we can't make the drive or." Uh, so the information will be there on July 28th on our website. I'll go, it's mylannotail.tennessee.edu. And if you just type in Mylan no Till, I'm sure it will take you there. But I think we the got date, seven. The date once again is July 28th. 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 Yeah. Um, I think we've got 17 research tours this year, about 50-something different presentations on all aspects of no-till as well as some related topics like beef cattle and hemp and i don't remember what all but you know uh, climate smart agriculture is a big deal you know in, in our business you know the new term is regenerative ag and we kind of feel like we've been doing regenerative ag for a long time you know we just hadn't had the animal component and that's something we're looking at now because we're looking at poultry litter and all kinds of things but you know we've been we've been focusing on the right things for a long time and i think that's good so uh, we're just trying to continue that on and keep up with the, the latest trends and issues as best as we can. And it's always changing. It's mm -hmm. always changing. So being aware and listening and seeing what's going on and then trying to figure out what can we do to, to help solve those problems. And so that's, that's why we're here. Yeah. Very good. Kind of getting to the, the end of my, my question, but I, I do have one for you that right. uh, might have to put the thinking cap on a little uh -oh. bit on this one, but uh it's, you know, that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Mm hmm Christmas movie. And, and I, I want you to think in, on this one. So given what the Tennessee faced in soil erosion in the late 60s up until 
things got rolling. What happens in Tennessee agriculture? How much slower is the transition if at that time McCutcheon and his team didn't say, we got to study no-till here, get the research going, practical, come out, and then have a way of showing the farmers the same thing? What do you think is different if that those things don't happen in Tennessee? Well, I'll, t- I'll, I'll answer it this way. We've uh, Our soils people tell us that, that our part of West Tennessee uh, is overlays a coastal plain sand. Okay, this is windblown silt, less soils over top of this coastal plain sand. Apparently, eons ago, there was a this was all part of the ocean. And if you put a well in and you drill down and you get below the, the topsoil and subsoil, you'll hit white beach sand. I'm saying it, it's crazy. And so, I mentioned earlier, I think that on our eroding or our sloping land, we were losing 30 to 40 tons of topsoil per acre per year. Okay. Now, if you can follow my math here, going back to our soil scientists, they tell us that it takes about a thousand years to form one inch of topsoil. So, uh, a thousand years for an inch. Well, an inch, remember the old acre furrow slice is two million pounds or a thousand tons six inches deep. So an inch is 166 tons. We were losing in four years what took a thousand years to form. Yeah. Follow that math? Yeah. And the, the, the other part of that, the other caveat to that is in West Tennessee, you know, I say these soils form. Well, they form if you have parent material like limestone or rock or granite, depending on where are you, wherever you are. East of us, it's limestone based. And so that degrades over time and it breaks down and it forms soil. In West Tennessee, we're over that coastal plain sand. We're over over the beach. Sand is in earth, it doesn't break down. When our soil's gone, it's gone. We're gonna be back on the beach. And I literally think, and we we have that in places. I literally think had Tom McCutcheon, John Bradley and others uh, not done what they did, we'd be a heck of a lot closer to being on the beach than we are today. In some places, we would be on the beach. Uh, you can ride around. I can take you out today and ride around, because I mentioned we're getting a little dry, and you can see the sandy spots in these fields. Uh, I passed some corn today that was already brown. I mean, it's it's chest high, and it's turned brown. It's just burned up. So my fear is, had that not happened, we'd have a lot of places like that, because we were just losing way too much. We're still losing probably more than we should, but we're not losing near like we would have been. And so I, I think we're proud of that. Uh, hopefully some of these newer things we're doing with cover crops and stuff, we're kind of adding to that building instead of hopefully we're building more than we're losing. Uh, I don't know if that's ever actually possible, but we're trying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've obviously slowed it down significantly. So. I don't know. Is that a decent answer to you? Yeah, that's an excellent answer. And it's a, uh, it congratulations to you and the entire team and everyone who was involved in there. Cause that's, it's a great story. And it, we talked about your answer was Tennessee based, but we know that it had far reaching impact well beyond the borders of Tennessee. Sure. Yeah. Well, a lot, of, a lot of good folks involved all over the country and all over the world. And it's, it's not a Tennessee thing or it's not a Kentucky thing. Uh, we're all in this thing together. And, and, you know, the great thing is we do share resources and we share information and, uh, you know, we've got this huge challenge of feeding this world, uh, you know, by 2050, more of us than there's ever been with 
less land. And so we got to take good care of it and we got to do more with more, more with less uh, and keep getting better at what we do. So that's kind of our goal. And uh, we're going to keep trying it just as hard as we can. Yeah. Excellent. Well, give us, give us the, uh, the date of the field day and the, and the website once again. Milan No-Till Field Day will be coming this year on Thursday, July 28th. We will begin at 8 a.m. and go through 1 p.m. Registration starts at 7 a.m. Uh, all the tour information will be available online that date as well at Milan, M-I-L-A-N, no-till.tennessee.edu. Again, if you just type in Milan No-Till, I think it will pop up first thing on your on your Google search. So uh, um, the program is there now. If you want to take a look at that, I think you can start looking and seeing the different things that are offered. And just to encourage people to participate. And uh, if we can ever help, we'd be glad to do what we can. So give us a shout. Come see us. Excellent. Excellent. Well said. Thank you, Blake. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in today. And if you have observations or memories about the influence that uh, the, the Research Center and the, the Milan No-Till Field Day, we've got several articles about it at, at notillfarmer.com. And uh, please drop a comment or a memory in at www.notillfarmer slash Milan. That's uh, www.no-tillfarmer.com slash Milan. So on behalf of No-Till Farmer and Farm Equipment, and, and, and thank you, Blake, and thanks for everybody listening in today. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Nice job on the stuff you put together on our center as well. We appreciate that. And I uh, hope everybody has a successful year. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a great field day. Thank you. That was Mike Lesseter and Blake Brown discussing the Milan No-Till Field Day. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lesseter one more time. Earlier in this broadcast, we talked about two farmers who had uh, talked about the biggest mistakes they'd made, and I've got two more for you to wrap up this uh, broadcast today. Alan Brooks of Markinson, Wisconsin, who's attended all 31 of our national no-tillage conferences, says his biggest mistake was assuming weeds in a no-till field were dead when they weren't. And then there's R.D. Walter of Wolcott, Indiana, says most farmers underestimate the cost of running their equipment. More growers would shift to no-till if they knew how much it can reduce machinery costs. He and his son tried variable rate fertilization with two companies, each working with about 10% of their acreage. Over three years, one company wanted to build up the nutrient levels of our soils to much higher levels and wanted to use pelleted lime to correct the pH. While pelleted lime has its place, R.D. says you don't need to apply it every year. He says that their, their farms have some pretty light soils that don't hold potash very well, and they thought they were trying to build up our soils to a much higher fertility level than it was actually needed. And the way they saw it, all they wanted to do was sell them more fertilizer. The other company followed a four-year program, and it was the third year before they applied any land, before they applied any lime. They had too many acres to cover and we didn't seem to be a priority with them. They were sampling on three acre grids while we do zone soil sampling. However, they just split a 21 acre rectangular field down the middle with half a grid on each side. And that wasn't my idea of how to make variable rate fertilizing work with either one of these companies. 
That concludes this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Verdesian, for helping to make the series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcast. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as we release a future episode. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and the entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.